Thank you for joining us. I'm your host, Simon Dudley, Chief Contrarian for Accession Events. To learn more and for information about the book and other resources, please go to accessionevents.com. Welcome, everyone, to this week's Accession Events podcast. Today, I've got a relatively new friend of mine and colleague at UC Strategies, Phil Edholm, on the uh, on the podcast today. Phil, welcome to the show. Thanks for getting involved. Oh, thanks much. Great yeah. to be here. Good. I'm pleased you are. Uh, we drank wine and got to know each other somewhat better at Enterprise Connect this year. And I thought to myself after we chatted for about two hours, perhaps while drinking somebody else's wine, this man needs to be on our podcast because he's got some interesting opinions. But you do a lot more than UC Strategies and you're a man about the industry, but some folks won't know who you are. So instead of me reading off some sheet about what you do, why don't you read off your sheet about what you do and tell us who you are, what you do, what your background is. Yeah, so, you know, very simply, uh, I'll start with background because it's probably easier to start there. Um, you know, long term, I was actually in the data networking industry, um, one of the original authors of the Ethernet standards. Uh, if you know what NetBIOS is, it started life as a secondary command block code protocol, a little company called SciTech. Um, that became Indus when we did the original IBM PC net, or if you excuse me, became NetBIOS when we did the original IBM PC network, also did um, the original shim layers, Endis, what became sockets in the IP world, uh, basically at the top and bottom of the protocol stacks to allow essentially an API structure between protocols and devices and protocols and apps. Um, did early Ethernet switching, um, went to Nortel um, 95. Uh, Nortel hired me to get them into data networking. Um, my goal was actually to do convergence. Um, so I was actually responsible for the Bay acquisition in 98, but started all the VoIP technology at Nortel on the enterprise side. Um, that led to me being the CTO at Nortel from 2000 to 2009, also was the CSO from about 2004 on. So drove the strategy, drove the MCA, the ICA relationship that Nortel did with Microsoft in 2006 that increased revenue by about 20% in 2008. Uh, when Nortel went through its troubles in 2009, um, I ended up going to Avaya. Um, I was part of the group that did the sale. Um, when Avaya became the stocking horse, Michael Frendo is actually the VP over at Polycom now. He and I put Avaya's technology products roadmap together. Um, and I stayed at Avaya for a couple of years as the uh, VP of technology strategy and innovation. Uh, came to the conclusion that I couldn't have an impact on driving the company where I thought it needed to go. Um, at the same time, believe the direction the company was in was not a direction that was going to create transformative change in the marketplace. And so I decided to leave in 2012. Um, after looking around and deciding whether to go work for another company, go start a company, I decided to uh, basically create a consulting company. Uh, focusing on unified communications, networking, advanced technologies. Um, spend probably about half my time working with vendors on different projects, starting with strategy and other processes. Um, about 30% within users and 20% in a remainder of activities I run with um, TMC, um, what was the WebRTC World Events. Uh, it's now real-time web solutions really around you know, this transformation that's coming around the webification of communications, I find to be an incredibly exciting transformation that's coming in the industry. Um, and finally, I do some interesting things, obviously, with UC Strategies. 
um, developed with Blair Pleasant, the UC Strategies RO, um, UC Benefit and ROI tool. Um, that's a tool that's used by channels to actually generate true ROI models for when you would use UC, what it will mean for your organization. So tend to do a, a eclectic kind of things, um, but really, you know, enjoy working in the industry. Um, you know, it's, uh, for those of you who you know, don't know me, I was, uh, Frost and Sullivan 2007 gave me a Lifetime Achievement Award for creating the VoIP industry. And um, if you actually go on the IEEE and look up the IEEE laws of technology, you'll find Moore's law and Metcalf's law, and you'll actually find Edholm's law of bandwidth up there. So a few things that some of you may have seen at some point. So other than that, you've not got much on then? No, it's just, it's fun. I mean, and it's fun because, I, I, you know, it's exciting because I think we're at a time when there's going to be more change in how communications and human interaction happens in the next three to five years than there has in the last 15 to 20. Yeah. I mean, I think we're in a time of trend of pretty much profound transformation happening and in, in how we communicate, how we interact. And, and a lot of the pieces that we put together over the last hundred years, you know, in the PSTN and the way we think about communications, a lot of those constraints are moving away and it really will change the way we communicate. Uh, it's interesting. I was talking at, to people recently about the whole telephony world. I mean, that, the telephony world hasn't, in, in at least from a user experience point of view, changed very much in 60 years. I mean, it's still 3.1 kilohertz audio. What the delivery mechanism is to the user is irrelevant. It, it's, it's actually you only, been a surprise. You only, you only get three things. I mean, that, that, your point's right. The, the PS10 is the best example of federation. Um, you know, federation is servers talking to other servers on the behalf of users. So... A federated system, that's what it is. And if you look at the, the two best examples of federation, the PSTN is the single largest example of a federated network. What's, what's interesting about federation is you end up with least common denominator services because you have to get a bunch of people to agree to work together. Yeah, I've been, You've been in standards bodies. I've been in standards bodies. Trying to get people to agree on stuff, you end up with either one of two things. You end up with a standard like SIP where the definition is so abstract that nobody's were, nobody will interoperate with each other, or you end up with kind of a least common denominator because in order to get it strict enough. And so, you know, if you think about the PSTN, you only get three things. You get, like you said, low quality voice, um, three and a half kilohertz voice. You get a phone number and you get a caller ID. By the way, both the phone number and the caller ID can be spoofed. So the phone number is actually good to find somebody if you know their number, but as far as inbound communications, you have no idea whether the phone number or the caller ID is real because they can all be spoofed, which we all know from all the robocallers that spoof those. So, you know, it's a very interesting perspective that, you know, if you look at what's happening now in communications and, and what we're doing, we're doing this on Zoom, obviously, is a really good indication of how communications is changing from that model of a federated singularity into a webification of multiplicity. Yeah, I, I was I was talking about this the other day and how I, I pointed out that I think for much of the last 20 years, um, the video conferencing industry has tried to make itself look and feel and act like the telecoms business. But the problem with that is you end up with lowest or maybe ho technically highest common denominator, but that's a very low 
<laughs> it's right. a it's a low high or it's a, high a low, low. It's a very low high, right? Yeah. But but what the instant messenger world has shown us is that in a world where you don't have to worry about conforming to everyone else's standard, then a thousand flowers can grow because you can go out there and innovate. And of course, every instant messenger application out there, or or WCC as Dave Michaels would call it, or whatever those other things are, they're changing the market. And I think that video conferencing which I know is kind of a specific concern of mine, hopefully will look more like the instant messenger world in five years than it does like the telephony one, because I think it's where all the growth's going to be. Well, and, and you're exactly right. It's, but it's actually, it's, it's just, to my mind, it's much more of the web model, right? So, okay. you know, if you think about it in 1990, 1991, um, all we were talking about was how we were going to connect together servers and build server networks, right? There was, you know, the whole concept of EDI, electronic data document interchange or data interchange. And they were how servers were going to talk to each other on behalf of servers. And what happened was, the CERN guys were sitting in, you know, in Europe. They had a thousand servers for researchers all over Europe because CERN is a pan-European organization, and they couldn't figure out how to get data moved from one server to another. And what they did was they created this technology. They invented using the browser, which was coming out about that time. And they said, "How can we build an environment where you can find the server where the information is?" point your browser at it, go directly to the server and get the information out of it. And they created the concept of the World Wide Web and URLs to find the information. And that is a profound paradigm shift in computing. Because if you think about it, since 1992-93, there has not been an application built that has federation, in-user representation federation in the information world. The last technology that's a federated technology and in information is email. Hmm. But since then, I mean, coming back to your point about messaging, and, and by the way, AOL tried to be that federation point, and that fell away. And you know, in other words, every event you do with the browser is a unique event, and it's a unique event between you and the server where the information is. Google doesn't take you to a server; they send you to a server. You go to Google, you do a search, you click on a URL, you leave Google, and this whole concept of a server acting on your behalf on the outbound side doesn't exist in the web model. Now, is, is this one of the reasons why email has failed to keep up? I mean, you talk about email being a federated pro Because email, frankly, is awful. Is it? I can't even send you a 25-meg file where I can no. do that, and I'm going to do that on, say, Skype since 1999. Is that part of the problem of the highest pygmy? I, I think that I think there's two problems with email in terms of kind of the the structure of it. I mean, one is that the messages, because they're federated in the way the messages get sent, the messages have relatively large header spaces. So, in other words, when we were doing an, when you were doing an IM through an IM server, I type in, "Are you there?" I mean, if you look at that message, what happens is. A packet gets sent up, you know, from my device to the server, and all it's got in it is, are you there? And it's one packet with an IP header, right? Then the server basically sends that down to your device, whether it's an application or a browser or whatever. It's the same thing. The, the message is very small. You take that same, are you there, and put it into an email and look at the header that gets sent. It's a page-long header. Sure. So the first thing is there's a lot of inefficiency. There's also inefficiency in that it's not a direct path. Right. If we're doing if we're doing IM that's peer to peer, 
you know, using a data channel or something like that between us, the message I'm typing is going directly to your machine. If we're working with a single server, it's basically a hop up and a hop down. Okay. So here's a question for you. In your, in your opinion of these things, for technologies to take off, then there needs to be, I think we'd agree, you tell me if you don't, that there needs to be the opportunity for there to be innovation. You can't be pulling all this old stuff with you because if you do, you can't move fast enough. Yep. So if that's the case, then how does the UC video conferencing industry, um, IM industry, whatever you define that as, I suppose the ultimate, the UC and C world, how does that move forward if we've got to continue to hold all this stuff back well, with us? Or maybe we don't bother and we kind of just start again. Well, I, I mean, I think, again, if you step back and think about it, you've got to be very careful to think about communications is no longer a separate activity. I mean, that's the first thing. I mean, the phone network was created at a time when, you know, the phone was a singularity on its own. You picked it up and you called someone. And in fact, you know, in many ways, that's an interesting thought process to think about is one of the characters of every phone call you've ever made is you knew who you wanted to talk to. And I, I will argue that in the coming world, that may no longer be true. The concept of call them for lack of a better accidental conversations becomes very interesting. I'll, I can talk to that in a moment. But if you think about this for a second, the phone call was always this separate identity. And, and to some extent, video calls have been the same way. But yeah, they have, yeah, until now. Until, but what's happening now is more and more the communication or collaboration activity is being integrated into another functional process that was going on, whether it's a customer care action activity or it's an application on the web, it's a dating activity. It's a, I mean, if you start to think about the things we do in life, whether it's consumer side dating, um, buying from a store, buying on an auction, on the business side, human resources and recruiting, um, a sales organization, sales manager talking to a salesman about a forecast, all of those things, the activity starts in the application and the communication comes out of the application. Now, you know, the, the challenge from a UC perspective is there were kind of two views of unified communications. And I, I'll argue that we kind of bounced between them for a long time. View one was unified communications meant all my communication was, was unified into a singularity of presentation and activity. Yeah. Then there was a second, which is, but I'm going to integrate communications into business processes and applications. And the challenge with this is, if you think about it, it's actually a very interesting, almost again, federation issue, right? If I've got, if I've got N number of communication vendors and I've got M number of application vendors, in order to create an environment where anybody in the application can, any application can use their communication system, I've got an N times M or, or NM squared number of connections and things I've got to build. On the other hand, you know, if you look at a technology like WebRTC, and I'm not arguing that WebRTC is the only technology you can do this, I'm not arguing it will not evolve, but with WebRTC, I as the application manager can put communications directly into my application. Yeah, People are using the application and the communications now can actually be optimized to the application. And, and Couldn't it, agree more. Couldn't agree more. It, it seems to me that we we built a world of UC 
And what it's done is taken instant messenger and, and telephony and maybe video and patted it together. When the client turns around and says, no, I, I want telephony built into Salesforce it, it, or exactly. whatever. Exactly. Or, into yeah. or into bones. That's yeah. the, that's where they wanted it to go. Yep. Yeah. And and I think that's what we're going to see. Is I think we're going to see a lot of communication. Now, having said that, enterprises still have a need for two kinds of communications in two dimensions. And so, if you actually think about a chart, and I I did a, a thing on UC Strategies about this called I call it BCC or the Next Generation. So, if you think about it. For employees in the company, there are communication events that are not associated with an application. And those really fall into two categories. Um, there are meetings. So we're doing a meeting now. You invited this by sending me an invite to a Zoom meeting. This is a meeting. Um, you're hosting this meeting. So we're doing this meeting in your tool, which happens to be Zoom. Um, conversely, if we'd done, if I'd invited you to the meeting, I might have invited you to a different tool. You know, I might have used Uber Conference if it was audio. I might have used a WebRTC product like FaceMeeting or something like that. But yeah. I would have used my tool. So meetings is one side. There's another type of event, though, that's different, which is representation. So one of the things that the PSTN gives us is the concept of representation. My phone number is a virtual representation of me that if someone has it, they can come and interact with me. Um, by the way, email addresses are another form of representation. They're, they think about them just as virtual representations. So if you think about it, you have to have meetings and virtual representation, and you have to have those for employees and for the company as an entity. So you actually, if you put those on a little chart, you have four boxes, right? If you put, you know, on the bottom, you put meetings and representation, and on the vertical, you put employees and company, you've got four functional boxes of communication services we're always going to have to have outside of applications that are necessary. So employees need to have a way that they can give out a universal address where people can reach them, whether that's a phone number, a URL, um, a SIP address, but it's something that I can give out. I have. It's yeah. interesting, though, that that's becoming, you almost want to say dial by social security number now because you want to get hold of me whatever organization I'm working for, you don't want to have to worry um, about, is he at X company or Y company or somewhere else? And it's true for phone numbers. I, actually, I would argue not. I, I would argue the singularity of identity, I, I think, is a great, um, will never happen for the very simple reason. I want to have separate identities for different parts of my life, and I want to treat those just like I have a, business phone number and an, and a home phone number. Yeah. I wouldn't yeah. want to combine those because I want to separate them. And by the way, when you get to the point of context and contextual management of availability and reachability, this gets even more significant because a significant part of the context is which identity you're reaching out to. Well, that's an interesting point. So for argument, I suppose if I'm calling a call center, I don't want to call Bob Smith at call center. I want to call Whatever, I don't know, uh, ABC helpline help. function. Or, ABC help. And it's interesting. I, I met a CEO once, um, a guy called Gaddy Tamari, a, a very good boy. And he, had, I shouldn't call him a boy, but a very good man. And he had a, his email address was CEO at. And I thought that was rather good. He said, because then when the next CEO comes in, I'm not going to be here forever. They can take over. I thought it was a nicely selfless 
experience, whether whether it was reasonable or not is open to some interpretation. But it's kind of an example of the point you're making. Right. And, and so so I guess the point that I'm you know, getting down to is that, you know, we will always have to have enterprise communication systems, whether they're provided as a premise system or a cloud system is a secondary part of the delivery. But you're going to have to have those services you provide. In other words, even though Salesforce has communications, I can't depend on Salesforce to handle all the communication needs of my organization. But I think what you're going to see is that more and more of our communication events are going to move out of that communication platform and into applications. And, and users, by the way, I think will get really used to the idea that the communication event is associated to the website, to the web application, to whatever it is. And, and you know, it's interesting. I, when I started talking about WebRTC five years ago, four, it's not five years now, I guess it's three years ago now, two, three years ago, um, someone who'd been in the industry a long time, I said, you know, what you're going to have is you're going to go do a communication at this site with this person, and you're going to use an interface that's based on what they define. And then you're going to go somewhere else, and it's going to be a totally different experience. And the comment they made was an interesting comment. They said, well, what you're telling me is I'm not going to have my client in my experience anymore. And they said, I don't really understand how I can deal with that. And my reaction was actually interesting. I said, so I, I really feel sorry for you. <laughs> um, they said, what do you mean? I said, well, you know, clearly you've only been to one website in the last year. And, you know, the reality is if you actually got on your browser and, and typed in URLs and went to Google, you could actually find there are literally millions of websites you could go to, but they're all different. And, and all of a sudden, there's this realization that we are able to deal with the complexity of information that's tailored to the website. I mean, it's a very interesting thought process. Think about Amazon and eBay. They're both doing essentially the same core business. They're selling stuff. Yeah. But their websites are profoundly different based on the model of how they decided to sell stuff. So why should we believe that communications will be any more difficult for understand that communications in Amazon, if you add it on Amazon, we might be very different than communication if you add it on eBay. Well, I would agree. And also it depends on, you could use the same technology, but it could appear very differently depending on the experience in which you're wanting to use it. Absolutely. I mean, I mean, in the, in the back end, by the way, I mean, if you think about this in the back end, communications is all about delivering either text, video, audio or data between two endpoints on the behalf of users in some way they can interpret and use them. So, sure. I mean, the tools are the same, but I, I mean, it's a very interesting thought process. I mean, the Amazon Mayday button, you know, a lot of people talked about it when it came out, it was innovative and then, you know, oh, it's WebRTC. But the thing that almost everybody missed about Mayday button, that's a really interesting thought process is it is an asymmetrical communication. So a phone call is highly symmetrical. The experience you get and the experience I get are exactly the same. In fact, this video call we're doing today is a very symmetrical experience. But Mayday button from Amazon is asymmetrical, right? The agent's video is sent to the customer. The customer's screenshot is sent to the agent. The agent doesn't see the customer. The reason you send video to the customer is to create empathy so the, the, the customer feels more comfortable with the agent. The reason you send the screenshot is so the agent can help. So they've actually optimized the experience so it's no longer a symmetrical experience. An asymmetrical experience 
designed to optimize the value of the communication and the context of the application. And that to me is a, when you start thinking about it, it opens this door to incredible changes coming in, in, the, in the industry. Yeah, I would agree. I mean, video is a good example of that. There's always been video conferencing, the, the symmetrical world, and then video streaming, which is obviously highly yep. asymmetrical. And those two worlds really never fitted very well together at all. It, it, there's always that sense with all technology that when a technology first comes out, you have to live, the human being has to adapt to the technology. And then when the technology becomes more advanced, then the technology can bend around how the human being wants to use it. Even in you know my little world of video conferencing, it was only three, four years ago, we stopped dialing people by IP address. I mean, yep. How ridiculously, oh, I've got to remember three, sorry, four three-digit numbers. Oh, I'm going to remember that. And, that and, that are, that are, they're, and they're not ten-digit decimal numbers. They're hexadecimal numbers. So you got to remember that, that they also include six letters. So. Well, potentially. I mean, it depends on, yeah, I'm not dying by IP6. Uh, forget that. I mean, there's more, more addressable IP6 uh, numbers than there are atoms in the universe. I can't remember. I can't <laughs> remember my own phone number, let alone anybody else's. My, our home phone, I don't know. The only company that knows it is the company that runs our alarm. Right. And, um, yeah, it's kind of crazy. No. So it is an interesting. It's, I mean, it's an interesting viewpoint, and and you know, and the other thing I I often you know kind of comment on is the idea of, I think real time communications are going to become part of the fabric of the majority of applications, as we go forward, and you know, some of them are easy to see, right? You know, the I go to Bob's I go to Bob's pool supply to look at buying a filter, and there's a button to click to talk to somebody in Bob's pool supply. That's that's an easy one, but the one that's more interesting is to think about an application like GasBuddy. So I don't know if you use GasBuddy. GasBuddy is a, no. an online crowd. Well, you live in Texas, so you don't have questions about gas prices. It's free as far as I can yeah, tell. Yeah, yeah. It, it's cheaper exactly. than milk. It yeah, it's cheaper than water, right? It, it's, yeah, exactly. Oh, yeah, so, much. <laughs> bottle water especially. Um, but but anyway, the, uh, the thing with GasBuddy is an application that's crowdsourcing of gasoline pricing. So what they do is if you're at a gas station while you're filling your car up, you enter the gas station's current gas prices, you get some bonus points. They have some drawings. There's some reward structure to have you do that. But what you can do is you can literally click on the app. It figures location out from your phone, and it will give you by price or by distance all the gas stations around you what their prices are. And so you can, you know, if you're driving down the freeway, you can see where the gas is if you want to stop. But, you know, here's the interesting example of how you could see real time coming into that. So I click on my Gas Buddy app and I see that, you know, the gas station at the bottom of, at the bottom of my road is, uh, you know, $3.29 a gallon. But I see that Costco is $1.99 a gallon. And so, you know, if I look at that, that's 20 or 30 cents on a 16-gallon tank. You know, it's five or six bucks. Plus, I know if I go to Costco, I can walk inside and pick up a... Uh, you know, huge package of toilet paper or something at the same time I'm there. But I also know that the lines at Costco are incredibly long. So what if I could click on the Costco gas station and it would present me a button that said, there are four PayPal members filling up, or four, excuse me, four ga gas buddy members filling up with gasoline at, at right now at Costco. And I could click, I'd like to talk to one of them. 
and ask them about it. And I don't need to tell it why. I click on it. They get offered the opportunity to talk to me for a 100-point 100, 100 reward. They click and respond, and then I ask them, and I say, hey, you know, how long are the lines there? You know, does it look like it's getting – and so all of a sudden, we had a conversation, not because I knew the phone number of the person I wanted to dial. Yeah. Oh, you even knew that name. I mean, they already read I mean, it. Exactly. Exactly. That answer. So I think this is, you know, as you start thinking about the innovation that's coming, and, and this is where I think we're about to turn this innovation engine on, because if you look at for the web world, putting communications into these apps, when you start doing it, whether it's in the browser or using, you know, the WebRTC protocols and functionality in a mobile device through a mobile implementation, all of a sudden, you can add this in. And I, I think it's going to really change the way apps work and mm -hmm. the way people think about stickiness and relationships. And, and it's pretty interesting. And, and by the way, of course, the, the great indicator that this is really happening is Facebook. So Messenger had 800 million users used Facebook Messenger in December. They claim 100 million people have used video in Facebook. Video, video chat. What do you want to call it video chat or video conferencing? Uh, I mean, it's it's basically video that people are using in Facebook. And in fact, the, the guy who runs Facebook Messenger has even said, well, why do we need phone books anymore, phone numbers anymore? You can just reach everybody you want through Facebook. So, you know, it's a very interesting question about where our world's going. Unless your name's John Smith, at which point you're impossible to find on Facebook. I'm going <laughs> to change my kids' names and put a seven in the middle just so that they'll be identifiable on, on the Facebook. Oh, that's an interesting, that's an interesting thought. Start giving, using numbers in children's names. Yeah, why not? I mean, you know, there's all sorts of ridiculous names out there, none of which I'll say now because I'll offend someone. But it's true. You, you might as well you put a seven in there uh, or you probably have to put a lot longer in there at some point just be, to be unique. <laughs> now, now we uh, change it. This is fascinating stuff, and I hadn't really thought through some of the implications of what you're saying. Um, this transforms what because it transforms you. See, I, I now maybe I'm an old lud. I'm not. I don't think a luddite, but maybe a skeptic who sits there and watches all the the manufacturers of UC platforms and goes, "Oh, that's great." Does anyone actually want this? But what you're describing is much more interesting. And I have spoken about this myself a bit, about how it's the workflow that matters. Video conferencing, certainly, I see becoming an application within other things, not as a separate thing in its own right. But, I mean, again, only four or five years, three, four years ago, you would buy a $10,000 box, you'd give it an IP4 address, and it would sit there as a lone device on the internet. And nobody in the IT world or in telephony would say, oh, yeah, we, we communicate computer to computer via IP address. I mean, it's kind of absurd, but it still happens in that world. And I said it will never take off until it's part of an overall bigger thing. Facebook is, as you rightly say, a, or a great example of that already. Let's be honest, uh, Skype has been that in yep, whatever guise absolutely. it has for a long time. So it's going to be interesting to see where it goes. This all feels a lot like the old days of CTI. Whatever happened to computer telephony interface? I mean, I suppose it happened a bit in course. Well, it's, still, it's still there. It's still there. It's still actually used by a lot of applications. Um, 
that were run on top of the kind of traditional communication platforms. But, but you're exactly right. It's but the problem with it, of course, is that things like the spoofing of, of phone numbers destroys the technology. Absolutely. Hey, Mr. Smith, no. Well, that's what it says you are. <laughs> Ruined experience. Yeah, no, it's it, it's an interesting perspective. I mean, I think the you know the the thing that we've got to remember is how much the web changed the world over the last twenty years. Um, you know, we, we tend to have these kind of views of how we do things today and not realize how different they were a few years ago. And you know that if you kind of project forward, um, you know, don't don't think about necessarily two thousand sixteen or even 2017, start thinking beyond that, you know, so if you look at WebRTC and I, you know, I think WebRTC is such an enabling technology uh, because it allows you to do this stuff in the browser without a download. Um, you know, I can go to a hundred websites and have a hundred video conferences in a hundred formats un uniquely done for each website. And I just use my browser to do it, which by the way, is exactly the same model that enabled the web, right? If the web had been built, where you had to go through AOL and AOL talked to somebody else, we would never have had the innovation we had in the web. Yeah, of course, what you're describing, though, with the WebRTC experience is also a very much more human-centric experience than much of the Internet is today. The, the, you know, much of the advantage of the Internet is I don't have to speak to other people. Oh, absolutely. And, and I, think, I think that's an important point, right, which is when I integrate, you know, if you think about customer care, um, you know, when I integrate my real-time communications right close to the website, I change the paradigm because the reality is 70 to 90% of people go through the website before they call a contact center, talk to a contact center. Yeah. Um, by the way, today, most people, the last thing they do is they go on the website to the contact us, get the 800 number, dial it on the phone, and you lose all the context of what they tried to do before they come in and talk to a poor agent, which means, by the way, the agent's primary job is triage where they probably did all the triage themselves on the website. You just lost it. Um, so, you know, the ability to, to integrate those two together. Yes, I agree. Um, and then the other side is actually almost more important is the ability to feed back, right? Because if we make the assumption that 70 to 90% of our, of our um, customers want to go to the website and solve their problem, anytime somebody leaves the website after trying to solve a problem and couldn't, it's a defect. So if we can clean, if we can make those things more effective for the users, there's two impacts. One is the users are happier because they solved the problem on the website. But two, we didn't have them talk to a human being. And it turns out human beings are really expensive in this kind of customer service. Um, you know, you look at banking, for example. In 1992, if you wanted to have do a transaction with your bank, you had three ways to do it. You could do it by mail. But the reality was, if you wanted to do something quickly, you either had to go to a bank branch or call the call center and talk to an agent. Uh, today, 98% of bank transactions are done on the web. And so, you know, it's a, a very interesting perspective on, you know, how do all these things begin to change where we're going and what we're doing? And, and I think we're going to see some pretty exciting innovation as this technology kind of proliferates out there, you know, there are 20 million JavaScript developers. That's 20 million people that can be writing real-time applications in the next three or four years. And so, I, so an obvious question here is, in your experience, who's leading the charge? Who, If our audience says, this is fascinating, I want to 
go and talk to some manufacturers who do some interesting stuff here. Who's your top shortlist? Um, you know, I think I think if you you have to look at it from different ways. So you know, obviously, you know, the UC manufacturers are leading the charge, right? Because if you look at Spark, Spark is written in WebRTC. You look at at Unify Circuit, it's built in WebRTC. Um, you know, Microsoft is supporting ORTC, which is a slightly lower level API than the WebRTC APIs. And they actually have said they're, pro they're going to be using WebRTC as the guest extensions to Skype for Business pretty quickly. Um, so one of the things is, and, and by the way, go talk to the contact center vendors. They're doing WebRTC. Um, you know, companies, companies like Cafe X have been doing WebRTC integration in the contact center space for video. Yeah. Um, you know, then you see people, if you're looking at more, not a UC kind of user, but more somebody who says, hey, I've got an application and I think real time would be interesting in my application. You know, then you start getting into companies that actually provide that. So GenBand has a product called Candy that provides that space. Um, there are companies like Temesis that have frameworks. So there are companies out there that are building that. And then there are companies that are coming on in very interesting ways. Um, you know, for example, Intel has put out an SDK for a media server that they actually are delivering as software. But what they're really doing is they're actually building hooks into their server-based processing chips to do specific functions that are of an advantage in doing media server functionality. And really their goal is to have media media optimized processors. So, you know, one of the challenges we have right now is when you take a media processing application and move it into AWS or move it into Rackspace, there are lots of issues. Software-based codec, software-based media servers have a lot lower processing capabilities. We lost the DSPs. Well, what you've seen, for example, Apple's done with 264 in the in their device, in the iPad and in the iPhone, is they created basically specialized processing that does those algorithms of the codec, those repeated things you do every frame, they basically put some of those in hardware so they're callable. And now, in fact, in, in iOS, and I think it's 9, iOS 9, um, those are now exposed so you can actually use them. Hmm. And so, you know, what you're seeing is people like Intel looking at how do I put the, that kind of functionality into server chips? Yeah, I mean, they already do, interesting, they already do it in the consumer side. There's the 264 encoders built into right. the I forget which Broadwell or newer, perhaps, uh, processors. But to do, it a, to do it at a server level is a game changer uh, because certainly in, in you know, the games that we're in, uh, the processing performance at the server end is really very important. The conversation with Phil turned out to be extremely in-depth. As a result, I've cut this podcast into a number of pieces, all of which I'm launching on the same day. And I do hope you find it a more convenient way of consuming what turned out to be an incredibly interesting conversation. I do hope you agree, and I'd love some feedback. Thanks for listening.